<laughs> Welcome to Just Dow It, the podcast for people starting DAOs. I'm Adam Miller, and I'm the CEO of MyDAO, which provides legal entity solutions for DAOs. And I'm your host. Prior to starting MyDAO, I did consulting for people starting and operating DAOs. This is the first episode of Just Dow It that we are doing as a live Twitter space. And so we will see if we're actually able to take this recording and publish it to our podcast feed. Hopefully so. Uh, but we'll find out soon. So let's start with a, a brief introduction to our guest, Cameron. Would you please tell us about yourself, how you got into Web3, and what makes you an authority on DAOs? Awesome. Yes. Uh, well, I'm Cameron. Uh, yourself, I am lead CPA and partner at Darian, Darian, Darian Advisors, uh, whatever you want to call it, but Darian Advisors. Uh, I've been a personal investor in crypto uh, since 2015 and really got my first start back in 2017, 2018 with tax compliance uh, for a few of my clients. But I would say that my my real resurgence, love and, and re-engagement came back during DeFi summer uh, in 2020. I got stuck together with my good friend and now business partner, Faisal. During the worst of it, my uh, OG badge of honor is I got the Uniswap airdrop, which is pretty cool as a CPA. Um, I don't know many other CPAs that did participate that, at that point in time. Um, so essentially, like back then, we're like, hey, there's uh, this chaos happening in my MetaMask wallet. Uh, we're playing with all these DeFi dApps, interacting with DAOs and whatnot. If I'm confused as CPA, I'm sure 99% of my clients potentially are as well. So like, hey, there's probably something to this um you know let's find some way to jam together so we spun off our existing base from my first practice uh, tax practice in the darian back in may of 2021 um and haven't really looked back since right now we work with over like 500 folks um a lot of Taoists, DeFi dgens DAOs, crypto adjacent businesses validators miners and a t projects the gambit um so i'd say i have been very much trial by fire for my own uh, playing around with Web3 crypto, and then I, some of my best teachers are some of my clients. So in that case, I guess, uh, the, I can't remember what you called it first, Adam, but uh, I am well-versed in DAO life. <laughs> An authority on DAOs, which most people oh, yes. can say there's no such thing yet because DAOs haven't been around long enough. But but I think as a result, anyone who's been doing this for at least a year really is an authority compared to the average person. So I, I think start, since you started several years ago, you certainly are awesome. I'm a counselor. I'm an advisor, not a, not a, not an authority. <laughs> there we go. I like it. Perfect. All right. So this is the first Just Dow It where we're not following the same uh, pattern that we used to. We used to always do the Dow News of the Week, and then we would go into a structured interview with our guest. This is going to be a little bit different. We're going to be a little bit more freeform. We'll, we'll try to have a little bit more fun. And I'll also try to participate a little bit more rather than just being um, someone who uh, is just asking the questions. Um, so maybe I'll just share, you know, briefly for the folks that are listening, um, what makes me so excited about DAOs. And then we'll turn to this, the topic. Well, maybe Cameron, we'll see if you want to add something to that. And then we'll turn to the topic of crypto taxes and, and DAO taxes, because I think people do want to hear about that. It's very practical, um, I guess, especially this time of year with taxes being due in the U.S. Uh, pretty soon. Um, so, you know, I just want to share this one vision that I have for the future, which is, you know, first, let's take a step back. If you think about some of the biggest technology innovations of the last couple of decades, um, a good example would be, let's say, Uber or Amazon. So when Uber was started, 
uh, people looked at Uber and said, wow, if they're really, really successful, maybe they'll capture 50% of the taxi market. And what we now know is that they didn't just capture 50% of the taxi market, they changed the way people live and, uh, and how they get around such that people are using ride sharing in situations that they never would have even used a taxi before. Um, similar with Amazon, right? Amazon came out and people said, well, maybe they'll capture half of the bookseller market. Maybe they'll capture half of the retail market. But it's not like we all get together with our families on Sunday for four hours and sit around on our computer shopping instead of going to Home Depot and Costco. We stop in a totally different way today because there's so much less friction and the experience is so different. And I think we're going to see the same thing over the next five years with DAOs, where we're not just going to see half the time someone is going to start a, a traditional company. Instead, they'll start a DAO. We're going to see people starting structured organizations in places that we never had structured organizations before. You know, somewhere in between individuals, families, friend groups, clubs, companies, businesses, charities, governments, international governments, right, and all the spaces in between. Um, so today, um, I, I don't think we've we've seen what that really means yet, but I think over the next few years we'll find out. So Cameron, I'm just curious if you have a similar vision for the future of DAOs or what is it that makes you so excited about DAOs? I mean, I, I am a environmental at heart. So I think what first got me excited about like the DAO and like, again, I, I fell for the whole Klima DAO rebasing back and then the whole, whole long story. But it comes back to the concept that I was uh, on a chat with a colleague at uh, the Praxis Consulting with, and he was just talking about how like shrines or bodies or natural features in India, they all each had their own like governing body that was representing whatever the idea or fundraising collective for the management of it. And that kind of like tripped my brain of saying like, well, if it has legal personhood, if it can be sued in, you know, Indian courts and saying like, whatever this construct or idea or shrine, et cetera, is, how can we not apply that to anything else? And, uh, seeing that and the ability to organize uh, from that perspective was kind of an interesting take and, you know, and coming to Denver meeting y'all and just seeing what DAOs are being used for today from either like community organization or specific ventures or with a goal or crowd, you know, crowd sci or DSI or all these different offshoots that couldn't be done in a traditional, you know, 501c3 or an LLC or corp or PBC or cooperative structure. Um, it's just a different way to get different parties involved, have their efforts, you know, be part of whatever that overall mission of what the entity is and, and have that kind of shared governance model. So it's, it's been really interesting seeing that, um, across the board really grow and develop. Um, and that's kind of what really got me turned on to it. And also the concept of just having something be literally code and having people vote on what code is and having that code be the overall bylaws of whatever the structure is, is, is quite fascinating as a part of the more archaic, here's our quorum each quarter. And we have, you know, X amount of shareholders vote, and then we take it to the board of directors and they approve X motion. It's just a, a more fluid futuristic way to not even govern businesses, but govern just organizations in general. Awesome. I love it. Okay. I'm going to take us from high level visionary stuff right into the core topic that I think people are here to learn about, which is uh, the, the most specific topic, which is taxes for DAOs. So let's start there. And then um, with whatever time we have left, we'll back into taxes for crypto in general, even beyond DAOs. Um, and then we'll, if we have time, we'll, we'll back up even further from there. 
So, so let's just dive right into taxes for DAOs. And Cameron, I want to just start by giving you the chance to share, like, what's the first thing that comes to mind for you? Or let's say a DAO, someone part, who's part of a DAO comes to you and says, hey, we just realized we might want to think about taxes. What, what's up with that? Yeah. Um, so the first part is like, what is the legal wrapper, how that entity is viewed by some sort of body? So like by default, any DAO is a collection of individuals or wall addresses or wherever it is, but there's someone behind it. And like the real, like the in real life version of that is like, if five people come together, they're for some sort of mission or whatever, it, absent of a wallet or any sort of online construct, it's a general partnership. But anything outside of that, unless it has some sort of wrapper or some sort of idea or structure, it keeps back down to that idea. And what a general partnership does, and Again, speaking with an American U.S. tax bias, somewhere, you know, functions, you know, within UK or Canadian law is that each person's derivative share of that um, entity is essentially taxed. So if they're 25% token holder of said DAO without any sort of structure, they're going to receive those profits come through and report 25% of such. And uh, what we see in, you know, kind of like the mutation of this is once you have a legal raptor, Raptor, rapper, apologies. That's um, fine. Yeah, that was good, right? I mean, I think it's the dino, the dino right? Dino PFP got me going. No, um, <laughs> is uh, once you have that, it, it allows to be like an entity apart from the individuals, and then it kind of brings that tax compliance down to the individual levels. So it doesn't matter if your DAO is based in the Marshall Islands, Caymans, Switzerland. You have an unincorporated nonprofit association based the states or corporation. That kind of idea pushes the tax obligations to the individual member and actually what they're earning and how it's taxed the treasury level, a different concern. But anybody that's a part of that DAO, token holder contributor, is only paying tax on what they're either earning or receiving from said DAO. So taking that autonomy is a kind of has this whatever entities out there and has lesser burden at the more like entity level. And it puts that tax obligation on when that gets realized or brought to or utilized in the real world with real people. And a lot of people like to live in this the idea that DAO is just kind of like metaphysical. Yeah, it's a collection of people and there's no tax or whatever. But at the end of the day, there are humans behind that keyboard or you know cell phone that are interacting that do have their share of efforts that are getting compensated or receiving tokens or whatever. And those people receive that income. So it kind of like takes away from the entity and puts on the individual um, at the very, very basal level. <laughs> okay. Let, let me let me break that down and, and kind of play it back to you and see if I understand everything that you just said. So um, first of all, there's this concept of legal entities and default legal entities. And I think this default legal entity of a general partnership is really interesting because... Um, you know, a lot of people, when they're talking to us about legal entities in the Marshall Islands or wherever they're thinking about creating a legal entity, one of the things they're thinking about is, well, maybe we just don't want a legal entity. And one of the things I tell them is, well, unfortunately, um, whether you like it or not, if you don't actually register as a specific type of legal entity, there's effectively a default legal entity that governments will give you, which is this general partnership, which is certain, you know, treatment in the eyes of the law and the eyes of tax institutions that is is generally not going to be favorable for for a number of different reasons um one of them is tax reasons so that that's the the first thing right exactly yeah exactly and that's the part of you know people have 
we did in the past, they come to be, and I have to give the unfortunate part is like, if you were all part of a multi-sig and there was no sort of entity, whatever that was generated or earned from that multi-sig, if you're a third owner or a 25% owner, doesn't those funds are still on chain or living with that multi-sig by virtue of being part of that general partnership, your share pro rata or whatever your coring store agreement dictates or even handshake amongst friends, you're going to be responsible tax-wise for your deriv derivative or your share of the earnings. Okay, so to, I'm going to make it really concrete for people. If you have, let's say, 10 people who are members of a DAO or a multi-sig or whatever kind of project, and that group of 10 people, uh, the project they're working on makes a million dollars in income in 2023 because it's like the latest and greatest new DeFi project or whatever, um, then as a general partnership, so you know, an organization that has not elected to create a specific legal entity type um, each of those 10 people is likely to be liable for taxes on one-tenth of a million dollars or $100,000 worth of earnings. So literally, the default treatment that probably applies to a lot of people from the past few years, but just hasn't been litigated yet by the IRS for people who haven't paid it, the default treatment is each of those 10 members has to pay taxes on $100,000 worth of earnings, even if they never saw a cent of that money. Is that right? That is correct. Okay. So that so that's a good starting point. And I think a, a lot of the folks in the live audience, I think, do have legal entities, um, including uh, with us at, at MyDAO. Um, but, so it's, but it's good to set the foundation of what happens if you don't actually create a legal entity of, of your own. So now let's turn to the situation for people who, who have created a legal entity. So, you know, the, I think we all probably know that there are all kinds of different legal entity types all over the world. Each jurisdiction is a little bit different. You know, an LLC in one place is not exactly the same as an LLC somewhere else. Same things goes for corporate structures and foundations. So um, maybe uh, you could start by helping us understand, um, you know, how might the taxes be different depending on what type of legal entity you've created? That's a good one. So DB get a little more basal with this. And I have a list, I've worked with small business owners, startups, and just like freelancers and solopreneurs, and even just a bunch of DAOs is if you are engaging as an individual, so like Cameron, the person I'm doing business, Cameron, the person, there's not a lot I can do as a tax advisor because there's no different legal entity. But once you create Cameron, the LLC or Cameron Inc or Cameron, whatever that be, it changes the conversations, the different flavors that can be taxed and allow it gives you an option to pull. So something what you know you touched on Adam is um all these different flavors and we can kind of go through with different examples. Um the first one is like the Wyoming Dow LLC. Really what that is is it's a legal entity in Wyoming, but it's still an LLC. And then what you have to be taxed as the at the IRS level is that LLC can be taxed as a corporation. It can be taxed as a partnership. It can be taxed as an S corporation. And if you get lucky on, you know, filing your uh, documents to the IRS, you could be even a nonprofit LLC in the proper in the proper way. Um, and the the what all those do though is, you know, by general partnership, LLC partnership, gonna be taxed the same. No real difference. You just have a legal wrap for what you're doing, which is a I'm not barred in the state of California, so I'll let other people have that conversation. But you will be taxed the same legally, all different conversation. Um, but going to like having your LLC or even just having a, a corporate, you know, Dow based in the States is you're going to pay a flat 21% corporate income tax. And then anything that's potentially distributed to shareholders or 
token holders or DAO, DAO members at that point at the state at the uh, U.S. level, whether it be subject to dividends tax or if they're you know receiving compensation, you know ordinary income tax, those amounts. And that's within the context um, within the U.S. regimes. Now, say for example that DAO decides to you know get its legal wrapper offshore, and you know there's quite a few different you know jurisdictions for this. They have all or less the same name is take that out of the scope of, you know, essentially U.S. income tax and tax on residual profits. And what's beautiful about that is all these things are kind of sitting out there either on chain or not being utilized or spent. It essentially delegates the tax reporting to whatever's being paid to the individual people. So it separates this, you know, Dow treasury overall structure from the people actually earning funds. And from what's cool from the tax perspective about that is, you know, depending on what jurisdiction you may owe, gross receipts tax or potential licensing fees, or assets tax, or et cetera. But it really puts that end tax reporting on the people that are actually getting paid for the services and not on like the capital appreciation or every single move that the Dow Treasury does. Um, I don't want to get too real, so I'll pause there and go back to you, Adam. And if we, yeah, we can check out different pieces. Yeah, yeah. That sounds good. Yeah, one question about that, just to clarify. So if a... DAO does have a registered legal entity that pays its own taxes, um, then the individuals will only pay taxes when they actually receive a distribution or a, a payment for services or a payment for employment or something, right? Exactly. If your tax is like a corporate structure, um, if it's still in like as a corporate a tax to corporation, but if you're like a DAO LLC based in Wyoming, unless you decide to go a different flavor from the tax perspective, so to speak, you're still going to be taxed as a partner within that general and within that partnership. And some of your examples, like if there's 10 people that form a Wyoming DAO LLC, if they don't elect any sort of tax treatment here in the States, they're still going to be on the hook for 10% of that million dollars, whether it was wrapped in a legal wrapper, which is the Wyoming DAO LLC, or just a general partnership. Okay, so you have to elect to be taxed as a corporation, whether you're an LLC or, or otherwise um, a some kind of legal entity, and then you have the benefit that they, because I think what's really common in DAO is a lot of the people in the DAO are not getting paid, right? At least, right. At least today. And I mean, especially, sure, maybe the core team and other contributors, but a lot of DAOs have thousands or tens of thousands of people that um, are members, but they're just not going to get paid. And so... In, in all of those cases, it probably makes sense to uh, create a legal entity and then choose to be taxed as a corporation. I mean, I shouldn't say in all those cases because it really does yeah. depend. And obviously, one of the reasons that 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 you know we're bringing Cameron here today is that you know as much advice as he can give in an hour, you'll need more um, if you're actually trying to pay your DAO's taxes in any kind of um, complex scenario. Um, <laughs> But that said, I guess generally speaking, that's the idea. But behind a uh, a corporate um, a tax election is that the people involved will not get taxed unless they're actually receiving some kind of payment or distribution. Generally, is that right? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. If you think about what the corporation tax is, is like it's kind of like a deferment strategy where it doesn't really tax individual members. Each person is in the hook for it. You're not paying quote unquote like phantom income tax on profits you're never actually realizing until you actually get paid from said DAO or corporation. You just pay whatever the percentage is in X jurisdiction. It sets it aside. And then whenever people do pay that to the individual, then they pay their taxes there. But you're still paying corporate tax, which is, you know, a discussion. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. 
So, so you know, a lot of DAOs are nonprofits or think of yep. themselves as being charitable. What's different in that situation? Yeah, I mean, and I've seen this even with you know a few um, you know regenerative projects I work with, and it's it's not hard in the states. You know, if you form a nonprofit corporation uh, and then go file your ten twenty three with the IRS, as long as your DAO has an altruistic or public servicing or some sort of benefit to society, and you know, incorporates a nonprofit, probably isn't the the worst thing to even do to onshore. I mean, there is like. The legal ramifications of being within the states but you know as long as it is towards the public good that solves the problem of not being a little partnership no corporate tax and that down can raise funds build the treasury you know make grants do all these things the spirit of non-profit activities but it's when um yeah i'll stop there but yeah it's essentially it's it's if you have some sort of good to contribute to society or you're you know in the case of like I'm a CPA. If we want to go out and form a, a DAO to put together a, a library of free tax resources, as long as it's in the spirit of public good or services society, there's no harm in, you know, applying for the 1023, raising funds, doing so through a tax-free vehicle, which is a nonprofit, um, and then, you know, um, achieving those aims onshore. And generally, is the same true for uh, non-U.S.-based nonprofits, whether it's a foundation or uh, in Switzerland or the Cayman Islands or a nonprofit in the Marshall Islands or whatever it is? Exactly. It's the same kind of idea is that the entity itself, and depending on what qualifies a nonprofit or foundation or tax level structures, like you're not paying tax as long as you satisfy the legal requirements to be that entity in said jurisdiction. But if then, if someone, say you're an executive director of a nonprofit, you know, working, getting paid your salary or your contractor fees, et cetera, from a nonprofit in the States, yeah, you're going to pay tax on it. Just like if you were, you know, contributing services to a DAO based in, you know, Switzerland or a foundation, Cayman Islands or BVI, et cetera, you're still going to be taxed under actual services or labor contributor that you get paid for and recompensated for. Yep. Okay. Makes sense. Um, so one of the interesting things that comes up when I'm talking to people that have a DAO, they're thinking about registering it as a nonprofit is oftentimes there's a project. It has multiple legal entities. It has multiple smart contracts involved and people may be making money off of that system in some way, right? Maybe it's a token that's rising in value. Maybe it's that they're a liquidity provider in the protocol and they're a member of the DAO and there's this metaphor I heard from a lawyer that I want to run by you that that I share with a lot of prospects and clients that um, we think helps people see the flexibility of nonprofits. And the metaphor is the following. So there's a couple examples. One is uh, professional sports associations like the NHL and NBA or the MLB, which are nonprofits. Um, and yet it's a scenario where people make tons of money off of the activity, right? The teams that are right. members of that nonprofit association are incredibly for-profit and the team right. absolutely rise and fall in value as is their stock. And yet there's no question about whether like these sports leagues should be considered nonprofits or not. Um, one more example is a yacht club. So yacht clubs and a lot of other clubs and associations um, tend to be nonprofits and even can be governed by the members in some cases. And yet the yachts can rise and fall in value. Your membership could be you know, worth a lot. Um, and there could even be services provided by the club that help you maintain or increase the value of your yacht. 
and and so in both of these cases, I don't think almost anyone would question whether these you know should be nonprofits or not. And it sounds similar to you know the situation where the DeFi protocol and the DAO maybe supports the protocol, governs the protocol. A lot of the people are involved with the protocol, but the DAO is not the protocol, and so it often seems like a nonprofit could be a good fit. So what are your thoughts on these metaphors and how they apply to considering an organization as a nonprofit or not? No, I think those are excellent metaphors. And the fact that like they are adjacent to the profit activities, but kind of like going back towards that, if like, here's the development entity that's actually responsible for creating the value or actually is providing services or is the beer business of making profits to so then pay to the contracts people service net. But then there's also people who are just in charge of overall governance or the overall direction or, or whatnot. And I, I think that's a great, a great example of the MLB NHL. It's really funny. I actually think those we were actually nonprofit foundations, but the same idea too, is that there's also private foundations where like, Hey, I'm Cameron. I want to start, you know, Cameron's foundation. And as long as the aims of what I'm doing, isn't just to go make crazy amounts of money and then safeguard this, but it's what you do with said money at that point. So if it's, you know, create awareness or doing X or furthering X mission, apart from just the point of just like making a bunch of money to sell it to somebody else. Um, it's the idea of what a nonprofit is that it, it exists outside of the individual stakeholders. It's something that's supposed to exist more in kind of perpetuity. So going back to the NHL MLB example is like the NHL MLB exists to further the perpetuity of professional sports in the United States. Now, each individual party is going to make money further that mission, hiring players and creating value and, and generating ticket sales and then distribute to set owners. But the MLB itself just exists to. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's really interesting. Um, and uh, I mean, it, there's, I also wonder about, I don't know if they call it an edge case, but l let's say, for example, that I start a nonprofit, let's say it's a DAO, you know, and it's a, it's a nonprofit foundation or nonprofit LLC or whatever. And my purpose is to support Cameron in his life. And I go and I raise money from people and then all the money we get, we give it to Cameron. I think that actually would be okay, right? I mean, it sounds like it's similar to picking an area, let's say like South Central LA, you know, which is somewhat near where I live. And I want to start a nonprofit that benefits people in South Central LA. So we're going to raise a bunch of money and we're going to give it to those people. So that's the first scenario. But the second scenario is now what about when those people are involved in the governance? It seems to me that if the people of South Central LA want to govern the nonprofit that benefits those people, that makes a lot of sense. And I don't think there would be an issue with that. At the same time, if Cameron is on the board of the nonprofit whose purpose is to give Cameron money, I think there maybe would be an issue. So how do you think about that type of... Because again, I think it's similar to... DAO use cases, right? Where the DAO's purpose is to support a certain community, but then those people yeah. in the community are also the token holders. And so is that okay? And and how do you think about that? I mean, as far as benefiting myself, so there's like the opposite part of like being on the board and then being a direct beneficiary, there probably be some sort of taxable, you know, benefit. I got to be taxed on those benefits. But in the case of like benefit overall community, project, idea, mission, structure, whatever that be, and having people that represent that or are directly involved and have them be on the governance board is, is completely fine. And then also be in some sort of way, like either not direct or maybe indirect beneficiaries of those movements. But then if, for example, like using your, your, your South Central LA, 
I'm on that board and I'm getting paid to do the books or the tax return or even just marketing for that. Like that's a service. Um, and that's like directly to the individual. And that's obviously tax for the individual providing services. But the overall like raising funds and then putting that back to beauty or we do a garden or a beauty garden or we're fixing this or advocating this or certain rights at you know city council, et cetera. Those would be nonprofit activities and be okay if I'm a member of that community helping govern the government of that organization, raising funds and spending said funds, as long as it's for a part mission, apart from just like paying myself, Cameron. So yeah. I would think if there's two or three parties, sure. Like, you know, I could go fund me example, that would be taxable, which is kind of weird. Um, but it's sort of like an overall, you know, funding some sort of mission structure, event, community, multiple parties. Um, yeah, it'd be, it'd be a perfect, it's a perfect, uh, example. And then I guess someone's still paying taxes, right? I mean, if I raise a million dollars and then we pay someone to do something in South Central LA, that person is has to recognize that as revenue on you know whatever business it is that we're hiring. And so they'll end up paying taxes on that revenue or those earnings. Or if we're just giving money to all the Camerons of LA, then they're going to have to pay taxes on the money we give them. So it's not like the IRS isn't getting anything out of the situation. No, I mean, exactly. I mean, I kind of take that example as like, we start the Sports South Central LA. We decide to make a grant of $10,000 to start a community garden. That $10,000 is going to be spent towards the fence builder, the equipment, you know, the dirt, et cetera. And those people, those contractors or anybody that's actually helping develop that plot or community garden, they're going to pay income tax on wherever they get paid from their share. So at the end of the day, yes, someone is going to pay tax on it. It's just a matter of, is it at that moment or is it get delayed? That's the whole point of that. The Dow of itself or nonprofit structure is it just delays the tax in essence. But at the end of the day, someone's going to pay tax on their perceived benefit from, or even just compensation from that entity or structure. Cool. Awesome. By the way, I think South Central LA is probably a nice place these days. Um, it's just an example I use because when I was growing up, people always talked about Compton and South Central LA and stuff. Um, okay. So we've talked about uh, for-profits and non-profits. Let's talk about um, the foreign nature or the global nature of a lot of DAOs and their legal entities. So, you know, to me, one of the really interesting things about DAOs that tends to be different from other companies is that they're global from the start. And that might be mm -hmm. because they actually have 10 or 20 or 100 or 1,000 people from all over the world already in a Discord server or wherever collaborating to do something together. But it could also just be, let's say, you know, Donna and I get together and we want to start a DAO and we have started DAOs together. Let's say we want to start a DAO. And um, even though we're both, we actually are right now, I think both in California, but like from the beginning, we know it's going to be global, right? The purpose of the DAO is that people from all over the world participating and governing and everything. So, you know, I think mo many DAOs, right? You have exceptions like the Austin, Texas DAO, which is a cool DAO all about Austin. There's Miami Community Radio, there's others. Um, but for most DAOs, they want to be global. And so right out of the gate, there's this question of, well, if we're global, where do we want to choose to create our legal entity? Um, yep. You know, for, it, classically, if we were starting a business, we probably would have just said, well, let's just do a California entity or a Delaware entity, and then we'll figure out the rest as we go. But I think it's different now. And so, you know, what does this global marketplace look like from your perspective in terms of, kind of choosing a jurisdiction? And then also, what are the implications for the fact that most of the members almost by definition, are not going to live in the same jurisdiction 
where the DAO has formed its legal entity states. So it's easy for DAOs to form offshore. And especially if you're living on chain, it's a lot easier because you don't need to get a bank account. And for us, where it's complicated, like we have to be registered with the IRS. We have to have liability insurance. We've got to be able to transmit, receive funds, et cetera. But if you don't need that structure, foreign offshore is actually quite easy because it removes that burden of anybody that's participating. If I'm, you know, I'm an American, I'm in a UK liberty company. Like, do I need to file a UK taxes with the HMRC? But if I'm part of a DAO that's now based offshore, you know, yes, the treasury, the entity itself has its own obligations, so filing, but I'm only responsible for what I get paid from that, you know, that DAO or structure later on as an individual, I'm not responsible for whatever happens in the standpoint. So starting from the square, from day one, make things a lot easier for people that are participants. Um, cause if you don't, and we, we went through this, you know, even both you and I are with, with my DAO and, and Adam and whatnot, um, and even some other parties is. They form a C-Corp or LLC here in the States. They're looking to raise funds or generate capital, get access to a bank account, et cetera. They create this thing of value, this token, they launch it, and then they want to seek control to the DAO that's offshore later date. And once you start onshore, you're essentially selling something of value, something that's offshore that could be governed by a, a Cayman Foundation, but you're going to have a pretty big tax event for anybody involved at that point in time. So if that IP is created in a more tax advantage or even just like friendly jurisdictional vehicle, it just alleviates that concern um, for people that, you know, and it re potentially reduces that U.S. tax exposure. Anybody that's obviously working and living in the States or in any sort of jurisdiction is going to pay their own taxes, but it pushes that burden to wherever, whoever's providing the services, wherever they're living, and it's paid in those jurisdictions as opposed to folks at the entity level. I was very long-winded, and I apologize. <laughs> no, it's okay. It gets complicated it very, very quickly, yeah, yeah, yeah. very easily. So I, I it's like figure tangent, <laughs> right? Exactly. I want to see um, if I if I caught um, the the gist of what you were just sharing. So I think yeah. you were saying that generally speaking, um, being a part owner or member in a foreign, I see, I don't know if you said corporation or a foreign company. Um, yeah, it is not usually going to be a pass-through tax it's usually like like just because you're a member it's always going to be only money that that organization uh actually pays to you that you have to pay taxes on generally um you know if you're if you're like if i'm a member of like this foreign dow or uae corporation etc it's going to be whatever your deriving profits or actual payments from that um but if you're like if I'm, you know, a member of a DAO or a corporation based in the States, I'm going to be potentially responsible for tax filings, obligations, trade, like effectively connected income with the United States trade or business. Um, so if you're not, if you have a multi-jurisdictional team, if you do form here, um, it just, it's not terrible, right? But like, it just makes the conversation a little bit tougher and it like the compliance a little bit more structured. And if you don't need to sometimes, or if most of your team's offshore, if you don't need to raise funds, or raise the SEC, et cetera, and most of your things are being conducted on chain, um, starting offshore may be a better approach just to reduce that, you know, initial burden, especially for smaller DAOs that can't afford to do all the the crazy foreign partnership, you know, compliance and be required in a certain jurisdiction. Okay. So um you're saying that there are this this extra um kind of a burden falls on people who are are members of a foreign company or not are not so it's like if you're 
if you're, if yeah, if you're, if like, okay, so let's, let's take this like, sorry, I had to get winded, but like to take this with a very simple example is like, I have my LLC partnership based the states or my DAO based the states, right? Um, I've got myself, I've got one partner, it's based in Canada, one based in the UK. Now, say we only generate, you know, five grand of taxable income. Now, to maintain compliance with that five grand taxable income for those foreign partners, we've got to file withholding tax. So like potentially 19 to 37% just gets taken and then sent to the IRS. Then that party, so the Canadian or the U, the UK citizen has to file a foreign non-resident return to get that refund back and basically say, well, I wasn't actually here at this time, or I've already paid UK Canadian tax against it. So for a very small organization to maintain compliance and like, that's a very complex tax return to file. And it's why you see a lot of, you know, startups just form sort Delaware's decor because it just takes that out, even if you have foreign parties. But then when you try to unwind it or move offshore or go to a DAO structure, there is a tax event because that onshore structure has created a value that it's selling said value to the third party. Um, but if you're in some sort of structure like that, where that does have the same kind of ruling or requirements for foreign token holders, foreign DAO, DAO, um, DAO members, um, it reduces that burden for smaller, small, for smaller entities. So I think you've just addressed one of the things we often tell people is that we hear that people outside the United States are less likely to want to be a, a member or owner of a U.S.-based corporate entity. And I think you've just identified one or maybe a, maybe the major reason for that, which is, and, and I didn't know that there was automatic withholding of, of income mm-hmm. for foreign people until they file. I thought they just had to file a document with the IRS that no one wants to do. But now I can see if I'm understanding you correctly, a, 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 lar- a reason why um, a lot of DAOs go outside the United States, at least have one entity outside the United States, which is yeah. their foreign persons are more likely to participate. That's exactly it. Um, or you pay a nice you know, 21% corporate tax for the not have to deal with my withholding. But then if you do any dividends or any sort of like profit sharing structures, you still fall in the same problem. So it's... Um, it's difficult to be a foreign shareholder partner unless you're a very well capitalized DAO startup partnership um, that you can pay those, you know, and deal with the chaos of compliance and waiting for refunds and filing. Um, but that's also like hard for, you know, the common man, which is, you know, most people involved in DAOs. <laughs> yeah, yeah. What about the reverse scenario? So, and this is especially relevant for for us at MyDAO. What about when an American, or if you can speak to it, a European or whoever else, um, is a member of a entity in the Marshall Islands? Um, I, now, I know that there's no filing requirements for them with the Marshall Islands, but do their home jurisdictions like the IRS require them to do or pay anything because of their ownership or membership in a foreign company? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. So... If you're um, in that case of like, I'm an American and I am a holder of this like Marshall Islands now LLC or whatever, whatever that is at that point. Now, all I'm going to be taxed on is anything that comes back in. So if I get paid out profits or if I get paid out for services, I'm only going to pay tax on that when I actually receive it, when it's actually earned and realized here in the States. Um, and then anything outside of that would just be potentially any, um, FinCEN or app by reporting. So if you have, you know, greater than 10 grand or a share or any, that's more of a compliance side or a treasury item. 
But from the tax perspective, it's only when you actually receive payments or earn monies from said overseas corporation. Okay. That's if it's, and that's, yeah, unless it's grew to the 50% American owned, which then could be contentiously viewed as a controlled foreign corporation, which is another discussion for another day. Oh, uh, we can also dive into it, but that's a whole different discussion. <laughs> yeah. And I'm sure about that. Um, okay. So as long as it's less than half owned by Americans, then it's not going to be treated uh, as a foreign controlled corporation. What about when it's not a corporation? What about when it's an LLC? Is it the same? I mean, let's just talk about the MyDAO Dow LLC for a second. It's a for-profit. Well, there's a non-profit and a for-profit, but let's talk about the for-profit because that's where taxes get yeah. into play. It's a for-profit LLC called the Dow LLC in the Marshall Islands. It's taxed at a 3% a gross revenue tax from the Marshall Islands. So uh, not including dividends and capital gains, but including all other revenue, they have to pay a tax on that. Now, what about for the foreign owner of owner member of one of those LLCs? Potentially could have, you know, exposure is, like I said, if it's greater than 50% owned, it could be deemed to be that. And that would need to file a 1120 F, uh, which is a foreign corporation return in the States, which then for anything that's deemed effectively connected with the U.S. trade or business. So... If someone's, you know, selling or engaging with U.S. customers or providing services in the States, um, that could be deemed to be effectively connected with the U.S. states or U.S. Sorry, the U.S. trader business. Um, but if you're an American, say you're living in Australia um, before, you know, before Marshall Islands down and, you know, um, you're not selling of any services to American customers or engaging with everybody in like Japan, for example. You may not have any U.S. income tax liability. You may need to file a return, potentially depending upon how the CFC rules work. But as long as you're not generating profits from U.S. customers, you may be okay from that perspective. So it really just depends on where those amounts and where those monies are actually being earned from or how they're being earned. And and this is where it kind of even gets more complex. It's like, it's a wallet address, right? Or wherever those things are. It's like, how can you actually deem us to be, you know, an American, which is... Oh, it's a can of worms. We've got a lot of fun cut out for us in the next couple of years. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. So speaking of it getting complicated, um, I want to invite Donna um, to ask you a question or two, because I know she deals with lawyers, tax advisors, and DAOs all the time and is aware of some of the more complicated questions we get asked. So Jana, what's on your mind? Yeah, thanks, guys. This is a really thought-provoking discussion, and I originally had a question about staking and how that was treated. But I think I'm just going to back it up and say, I speak to probably anywhere from 30 to 60 DAOs a week that are looking to incorporate. Oh yeah. And so they ask some awesome. really great questions. And one question that I'm wondering if they should be asking that they're not is, should people, as they get involved in DAOs, I mean, a lot of this stuff is... I don't, I don't want to say shrouded in secrecy because I, I, I don't want to use that word, but sometimes it's difficult to find out what the legal structure of a DAO is, right? Like mm -hmm. I'm, a, I'm a member of Bankless DAO, for example. There's like over a thousand people and, you know, most people don't even know who to go to to ask a specific question, right? So we do a lot of chatting through DMs and things like that. And so I'm wondering... When you talk about these taxes here and the DAO's legal structure, I mean, should members or contributors be asking as they join 
so that they know what they're getting into. Like, especially Americans, right? We we have this burden, no matter where we live and no matter where we mm-hmm. place our seat in the world, that we, we have a obligation for worldwide income tax. It doesn't matter if we never live here again, unless we like relinquish our citizenship and do all kinds of uh, complicated things. I mean, we have that burden. So I'm just wondering, like, are these the types of questions that people should be asking sort of like out of the gate as they get involved in a doubt? Like where would the entity and what, you know, what would my responsibility be? I mean, potentially, yeah. It also depends on, you know, how big they're involved or to what degree or if they receive tokens etc the potential obligations but a lot of you know if you're you know just a DAO i mean not just but just say you're a DAO contributor a member or token holder you know most of your obligations or or concerns if you're you know a minority quote unquote like a minority token holder is not really personal right like you're more responsible Mm -hmm. more if you're receiving staking rewards or if you're farming if you're farming the native you know governance token and an LP, et cetera, or if you're receiving capital gains, like that's really much individualized or if you're getting paid and, you know, in that token for your services, that's also individualized. Um, but the conversation of like, it's the upside of whatever that down structure is. And if you are potentially a shareholder or, you know, you actually have equity or if that DAO was inevitably sold to another party, um, and not like through a foundational nonprofit structure. Potentially, yeah, like having that question be a very, very good conversation of, you know, what is it and what am I actually signing up for when I receive it? Um, not probably a big deal for if you're like buying a governance token on Uniswap, but if you are participating yeah. more in, in the governance or if you are a larger stakeholder or one of the core contributors, definitely, definitely, definitely ask the question. That's a really good point. I will be sure to pass that along. And then my other question, if we have time, is just how how is staking treated from a tax standpoint i mean it's kind of a loaded question right but if i like i talk to a lot of DeFi protocols that the protocol is not legally wrapped right because it's open source and it's its own unique or its its own object if you will and then you have the dao that manages the treasury and the governance etc and they give out staking rewards and things of that nature how should something like that be considered if you're yeah. a serious contributor in a DAO, and if it's too, if this is like now borderline uh, tax advice, then I guess we can we can table it as that. <laughs> no, we we just we just say the magic word, which is, is not tax advice, and do your own research. <laughs> We're good. We can say whatever we want. Uh, but no, I will I will say, but I will say is from the individual standpoint, and uh, this is something we we live with a lot, and it's also very important because anybody that's you know part of a DAO. Is probably going to see you know either delegate or stake their token with the DAO or the spirit of the treasury so they can generate and keep doing whatever the DAO needs to do, and for that you're receiving rewards. Now, whether staking is taxable or not is going to be argued until we're all doing the face for the next three to five years, and the conservative like steep gay answer and what the current IRS guidance says is if you receive something of value. When it comes into your wallet, it's generally considered to be income. So you claim those rewards, you they come into your wallet, those are going to be income, and that's what the IRS is going to argue. And a lot of also, this is what the, the, the CRA is like, the HMRC, the ATO, when you receive it, generally going to be received as ordinary income. Now, 
where I see this as someone that's been staking um, or participating, you know, in the, the different types of staking or even yield farming, the true answer is it depends. And where I kind of walk this through, and there's a couple of there, like a few other people in the space that will take the IRS guidance and just iterate it, which is the more conservative defensible position. And I, I get it. And it's a part of like, this is all going to be argued in tax courts. Um, but conferring with our, you know, partner tax attorneys who has six, who have successfully, successfully, sorry, like one case is arguing that mining itself is non-taxable um, until they actually sell the tokens. In mining, we thought when Bitcoin first came out, the IRS to say mining rewards or art forks are taxable. If we're still letting questions in tax courts about that, that means staking, yield farming, LP rewards, all these other items. The short answer is it depends. And it's probably until we get something passed by Congress, everything right now for the IRS is FAQs, bulletins, advice, which means if we audit your tax return and if this goes to tax courts, this is our position and you knew better and you're directly going against it. It doesn't mean that the position that's taking is not taxable is wrong, but it's going to be an argument which is going to take legal resources to get across that finish line. And the kind of highlight staking in general and where it's it's quite frustrating as a, a tax CPA because I get questions asked all the time and I, I wish I could give a better answer. But the thing is, is if you think about the various steps is like, say you're staking with like Algorand or Tezos where you receive your rewards every single, you know, block or Epic, et cetera. And those come into your wallet and then you restake those. You never sell them for fiat. You never sell them for stables, never remove them off. You never get anything of value of it. The IRS had a case, which is the Jarrett case. Um, they dismissed it. They paid a refund and basically like, we'll fight this for another day. Now, what happens when you delegate or you have an auto, you know, you have a, you know, combo, yeah. a liquid staking, all these derivatives where generally we see them as potentially capital gains events because you're not actually directly receiving that token. So if you get offered like, you know, there's liquid staking on, you know, I'm, I'm a big part of the Cosmos that I'd be seeking, there's liquid staking or, you know, delegations and auto delegations. Like if you don't physically receive those into your wallet, the actual claim event, it strengthens the case that it's not ordinary income. So how you're staking, there's no wrong or right answer, but there's better ways to make it defensible if things go the wrong way or if things do get auto changed. So the literary very like short answer is it depends. Um, we have a lot of clients on the individual side that will kind of push it. Also some that are more by the book, but like that's where we work with to understand where the preference is, what the type of staking is, how you're staking it through what, through what fashion. Um, but I do see on the more enterprise level with some of our validators, um, people are natively with, you know, a little bit more directly involved just because they have a little bit more legal exposure, compliance exposure. They tend to gear on the side of conservatism and pay tax on their staking rewards just because if things went the other way, they'd be made an example of in the IRS tax court. So really, really take your poison. You know, I, I make DMs are open, like ask you questions on this for specific examples, et cetera. But um, personally, as like who Cameron is and what I found on my own taxes, I generally, for most of my stake rewards, I push to capital gains. I think it's a fair argument to be had. Um, but it's one of those things where going back to my clients, I'm like, well, how much do you want to sleep at night? No, if you challenge the IRS. Yeah, no, it's a good point. And it's it's fascinating. And I should mention, I, I'm not even sure if I told you this. I actually met someone at Eat Denver that was from the IRS, or they said they were from the IRS. And, uh, <laughs> you know, I was, uh, I was impressed, but also, 
Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I want to dip you could so one even one one question deeper into the staking question, and then I know we're almost out of time. Um, what about from not the person receiving the staking rewards perspective, but from the like a let's say it's a DAO LLC or some kind of DAO corporate entity um, that it, either a protocol they govern is providing rewards or the DAO itself is providing staking rewards from its treasury? How do you think about that from a tax perspective? That's it. I mean, from that level, the pen, I would say, the short answer is depends, right? I'm going to cop out. No, but, you know, if it is a for-profit structure where like as the, if a token holder has rights to the equity or upside, if you're accruing more or granting them more, it'd be more akin to like a, you know, an analogous example is like a stock split or stock dividend, which wouldn't really be a deduction to the corporation of sorts. And then if you have a nonprofit where you're granting more, you know, if you're making these more available and issuing more staking rewards, um, those would be, you know, a non-deductible expense because it's not or sorry, deductible, not deductible, but just an expense um, to the overall nonprofit. So I don't think if you're in the for-profit sphere that these would be deductible, but that's the flip side is like, if the IRS deems and this later gets hold up in tax courts or approved in tax courts two, three years down the road. If it's income to the individual, right? Like if I have to mechanize income every time I receive a stake reward, the flip side of that is then that's the expense to the issuing entity, which would then be deductible. So it depends on which thing it goes. But the thing is, you also have a timing difference where one person may even expense or it's stock split or it's non-taxable and the other one isn't. And that's, you have, you have two things that are, that are mesh here comparing apples to oranges. What, what both flip sides, the, the both sides of the transaction are. No, that's great. That's great. And uh, I think I will uh, bring us to a close, at least from the podcast perspective, and then we can talk about whether we have a few extra minutes to hang out and, and invite people on stage. Um, but for the podcast sake, uh, uh, Cameron, first of all, this has been amazing. Thank you so much. It's the deepest we've ever gone in a just Dow it. And I'm, I'm excited for our future episodes now as a result. Um, where can people find you and Darian advisors on the web and or on social? Yeah. Um, so Telegram and Twitter, Cameron underscore Darian. Uh, our website is www.darienadvisors.io. Um, and we offer like for anybody a, a free 20 minute in, you know, introductory call centers that what your situation, what it's about. And then we kind of take it from there. So like, Hit us up. Um, if you're looking to collaborate partnership, reach out to me directly. Um, I'm always wanting to have fun conversations. I spend a lot of time in the tax weeds, so anything that's not tax, I will happily chat with you guys about. Awesome. Love it. And you can find me on Twitter at 0xthriller. MyDAO is at MyDAODS. That's M-I-D-A-O-D-S on Twitter or MyDAO.org. And you can find our co-host, Jana at Jana underscore Standis. Uh, on Twitter. And uh, Cameron, uh, thank you so much again. And for the audience, live audience, as well as the podcast audience, are you thinking about starting a DAO? Just DAO it. Just DAO it is for educational and entertainment purposes only. Just DAO it does not contain any legal or financial advice. MyDAO also does not provide legal or financial advice, and nor does your host, yours truly.